Good afternoon and welcome to this book at lunchtime event on Ravenna, Capital of Empire, Crucible of Europe, written by Professor Judith Heron. My name is Wes Williams and I'm the director here at Torch. Book at Lunchtime, as regulars will know, is Torch's flagship interdisciplinary event series, taking the form of bite-sized book discussions with a range of commentators. Please do take a look at our website and newsletter for the full program for the rest of this term. The book we'll be exploring today in a discussion chaired by Peter Frankopan, who's about to join us on screen, explains and explores how the Adriatic city of Ravenna became both a meeting place for Greek, Latin, Christian and barbarian cultures, and something of a pivot point between East and West. In arguing for the new understanding of the significance of Ravenna, Judith's book also argues that the fifth to eighth century should not be perceived as a time of decline from antiquity, but rather, and in large part, thanks to the rich culture of Byzantium as one of great creativity. I'm delighted to welcome Judith Herrin here today to speak about her book, along with Averill Cameron, Conrad Leiser, and Peter Frankopan, who, as I mentioned a minute ago, will be chairing the discussion. In a second or two, I'll disappear from your screens and hand over to Peter, who will introduce the book more fully and the rest of the panel. This will be followed by a brief reading and discussion by Judith, and then our commentators will present their thoughts on the book, coming at it from the, their particular dis disciplines and starting the discussion going. We'll then give Judith a chance to respond, or within this, Judith will of course have the chance to respond to some of the points raised before entering in the last stages of uh, today's hour into what we hope will be a discussion that includes questions from you, the audience. So please do ensure that you add your questions to the Q&A as we go along. All that's left for me to do then is to thank you all for coming and to introduce our chair. Peter Frankopan is Professor of Global History at Oxford University, where he's also a Senior Research Fellow at Worcester College and Stavros Niarchos Foundation Director of the Oxford Centre for Byzantine Research. He works on the history of the Mediterranean, Russia, the Middle East, Persia, Iran, Central Asia and beyond, with a key aspect of his work being the history of relations between Christianity and Islam. His books, The Silk Road, 2015, and The New Silk Road, 2018, received huge acclaim. He writes regularly for the international press, advises governments on geopolitics, and is chair of this year's Kandil History Prize. Over to you then, Peter. Uh, I'll join you later when we come to the questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Wes, and thank all of you for joining us. I'm sure, like I am, you're all desperate to hear the results of the presidential election, but we won't know until the 15th of November who has won in Moldova when there's the runoff um, because of results being inclusive so far. Uh, so thank you all for, for joining us today. Torch is such an important part of what we do in Oxford, the Centre for Research into the Humanities, uh, as Wes said, is the flagship for interdisciplinary work. Uh, and so it's a great pleasure today to welcome Judith Herrin, who is an old friend of late antique and Byzantine studies and of the Oxford Centre for Byzantine Research here in Oxford. And so it's a real thrill to get her to come and talk about her important new work on Ravenna. Uh, Judith Herrin doesn't need any introduction, but she won the Heineken Prize for History, which is the Dutch Nobel Prize in 2016 for her pioneering work on the early medieval Mediterranean world, and especially the role of Byzantium, also the influence of Islam and the significance of women. She's the author of Byzantium, Byzantium The Surprising Life of the Medieval Empire, 
the formation of Christendom, a medieval miscellany, and women in purple. Uh, Professor Herrin worked in Birmingham, Paris, Munich, Istanbul, Princeton, before becoming Professor of Late Antique Byzantine Studies at King's College London, uh, where she's now the Constantine Laurentiis Visiting Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Classics. Uh, it's a joy to be joined by Professor Herrin, but also by two um, friends and colleagues here in Oxford, again, both heavyweights who need no introduction. Professor Dame Everell Cameron was Warden of Keble College from um, 1994 to 2010, and before was Professor of, was professor of Late Antique and Byzantine History at King's London, where she was also the first director of the Centre for Hellenic Studies. Professor Cameron was also the founding chairman of the Oxford Centre for Byzantine Research, which some of you will know has had a fantastic 10 years since we were founded in 2010. Professor Cameron is currently the, professor, the president of the Society for the Promotion of Byzantine Studies. Uh, Conrad Leidzer is a colleague of mine at Worcester College, where he's associate professor of history uh, and tutor of history at Worcester. He specializes in the religious and social history of the Latin West in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, um, which is from about 300 to 1100. Uh, his current research project centers on celibacy and the professionalization of the priesthood in the so-called unreformed church of the 10th century. He's the author of Authority and Asceticism from Augustine to Gregory the Great and co-editor of England and the Continent in the 10th century. So first we'll ask Professor Heron to talk about, about Ravenna, capital of um, empire crucible of Europe. And then um, I'd like to bring in Professor Cameron to respond and uh, Professor Liza after that. We'll then have a discussion amongst the four of us. But um, those of you who have questions, please put them in the uh, Q&A box We'll try to get through to them as quickly as we can before uh, finishing, but um, you can't all applaud as Professor Heron makes her way to her keyboard and her camera. Uh, but it's a great pleasure, Judith, to welcome you to talk about Ravenna to us today. Thank you very much, Peter. It's a great joy to be here. And as suggested, I shall read from the concluding pages of the book, um, which I hope will be um, uh, give us taste of what's to come. Uh, I pick up the point at the point where, as is generally agreed, cities in the medieval West declined in the post-Roman period. The exception was Ravenna. The source of its flourishing was the Eastern Roman Empire, which renewed and consolidated its authority, not only in the capital, but across its provinces, where new palaces, churches, aqueducts, baths, and charitable institutions surpassed the monuments of ancient Rome. As Rome became depopulated, Constantinople expanded. Ravenna shared in this expansion as Honorius, Galla Placidia, and local bishops patronized new buildings, making it an outstanding exception to the degeneration of most classical cities and settlements. With Constantinople's approval, Theodoric integrated Eastern influence into Ravenna's Christian Gothic administration that made the king more Roman than most Romans. While he conformed to Gothic ideas of kingship, he brought to the West a grasp of imperial traditions that consolidated a very particular combination of elements, an understanding of the importance of law and the administration of justice, an acknowledgement of the differences in Christian belief, which made a degree of toleration essential, a respect for superior Greek education, and a capacity to collaborate with the best qualified and most skilled individuals who could assist his ambitions. Through these features observed and adopted in the East, Theodoric oversaw the symbiosis of Germanic and Roman elements in the West, 
which would be continued by the Exarchs thereafter. As well as his great church of Santa Polinare Nuovo, Theodoric's mausoleum is a telling witness to this integration of barbarian and imperial Roman qualities. Here, the king who had dominated the West, governing in the name of Constantinople, had constructed a domed tomb fit for an emperor. Visitors even today can marvel at the single slab of Istrian marble that forms the roof. How on earth did they raise it in the early sixth century? And once installed, how did it survive? Most early Christian buildings that remain standing today do so because they have been continuously occupied, renovated and kept in use as sacred buildings in Ravenna, often by monastic communities. The more secular palaces, residences, assembly halls, houses and trading places that make up medieval settlements rarely retain such attention, were often pillaged for building material and then replaced by grander, better constructed, more fashionable or serviceable edifices. At some date, Theodoric's tomb was transformed from its funereal function into a nunnery, and this kept it in use. But its original purpose was not forgotten, and the king's fame was preserved in the huge marble sarcophagus still visible. In other Western regions, a similar symbiosis occurred from Visigothic Spain to the Anglo-Saxon, Frankish and Burgundian kingdoms, where court rituals, imperial costume and patterns of patronage were imitated. But in Northeast Italy, the imperial framework provided by the Eastern capital in Constantinople requires particular emphasis. For without Byzantium, there would have been no Western Europe. After the Arab conquests of the Eastern and Southern coasts of the Mediterranean, Constantinople provided the shield that excluded Islam from further advances into the West. In 732, Charles Martel's victory at Poitiers also frustrated Umayyad expansion north of the Pyrenees. But this was an opportunist raid seeking treasure, not the full-scale mobilization by land and sea that fell upon but failed to take the Queen City in 718. The significance of Constantinople in the transformation of Western Europe was not merely that of an outward shield, however. The imperial framework exercised a cultural hegemony that facilitated a fusion of non-imperial forces and transmitted a variation of its own policy of acculturation to the West via the Gothic King Theodoric, the bishops and the exarchs. Through its capital in Ravenna, the empire sustained the ideal of efficient government sanctioned by law within the West itself. In multiple ways, its benefits sanctioned by, uh, excuse me, its benefits commanded respect and a tinge of admiration for the Eastern emperors, even among the most hostile enemies. And in Italy, an underlying loyalty to Constantinople persisted through the sixth century and beyond. The influence of Byzantium was diffused, especially through Ravenna. The city acted as an essential catalyst to the development of a society that would eventually outstrip it. In this way, the Christianized New Rome was a constant built-in inspiration for the powers that took over in the West. Charlemagne has traditionally been hailed in Alcuin's phrase as the father of Europe, as if he acted alone. But the foundations of Western Christendom that he exemplified were laid in Ravenna, 
whose rulers, exarchs and bishops, scholars, doctors, lawyers, mosaicists and traders, Roman and Goth, later Greek and Lombard, forged the first European city. Fantastic. Thank you, Judith. And it's a, it's a magisterial way to end a book that has been both widely and universally praised in the, in the, in the press. I mean, I, I, just could you develop a little bit more, I think, this idea that um, uh, without Byzantium, there would have been no Western Europe. I think that comes as a shock to many Western medievalists uh, or to many listeners who think that Europe means uh, France, Italy, Germany and, and Iberia. What role does Byzantium fit within the seeding of Ravenna? And then why, why, why is it right to claim the, um, the development to pin it? Um, of Western European society back onto Constantinople? I think people generally forget that the Mediterranean world was one. It was united. It was united by the sea. Even after the Arab conquests, it remained a very, very significant unifying factor. And within that world, the capital of the Roman Empire was in Constantinople. And that was recognized by nearly everybody who had to deal with imperial forces and with um, the influence of Roman law, um, Roman concepts of architecture, a great mal multitude of features of Roman culture, which had been transposed to Constantinople. Constantinople, I think, was the greatest achievement of the Roman Empire in some ways. The construction of a new capital in the East Mediterranean that dominated not just that area, but the entire world. And that unity meant that there was constant coming and going and transmission of ideas and individuals and forces across the Mediterranean, not just at the behest of Constantinople, of course, uh, but very much uh, dominated by its imperial force and power. And I think it's very important to remember that in this in united world, of course there were hostile forces. There were many, many opponents of Constantinople but there was a deference and an understanding of the role that Constantinople play, played. And I suspect that what we see in Ravenna is a, I had not expected to find it, but it is so pronounced that you get a very clear indication of the way in which Ravenna linked the two halves of the Mediterranean world and that it's, it's, it's position as a pivot, as a link between the two halves gave it a very specific Constantinopolitan flavor. And in this way, I would argue, it, the influence of the East Mediterranean continues to flow into the West and over the Alps to Northern Europe, where after all, um, uh, the Frankish King Clovis decided to celebrate uh, his uh, rise to power by assuming the title patrician and uh, holding races and entering um, Paris in a chariot scattering gold coin as if he was an emperor. And those are the ways in which you can see very clearly that there was a, a very dominant ideology of power. And this was manifested in Ravenna by the authorities sent from Constantinople after 540 AD. So before I, I ask Professor Cameron for a comment, I mean, what, one thing that I think is um, interesting about Ravenna is, is and could you say something about where does it come from? What, what, why does Ravenna blossom from, um, from nothing? And then where does it go? And I, I don't mean the metaphorical Ravenna, I mean the actual Ravenna. How, how, where, where does 
Ravenna spring from and why does it not take on the trajectory of Constantinople or Rome or other big cities that carry on? How, how do we explain this efflorescence of a two or three hundred year period, or three or four hundred year period, I should say? Well, clearly it drew on its history as a maritime port, the most important port in the Adriatic. Um, Julius Caesar had decided that it would be the, the, the base for the Eastern Mediterranean fleet and Mycenaeum near Rome was to be the base for the Western Mediterranean fleet. And a very large port had been constructed on an inland lake where 250 ships could be protected. And there really aren't other ports down the Italian coast of the Adriatic. Um, it's a very long, sandy uh, shore extending uh, with, with very little harbour, um, protective harbour space. So Ravenna, uh, well, through its port at Classe, which was linked to the city, became the base for shipbuilding, for training navies, for sailing, for maritime activities. And from that history of uh, engagement in the sea, on the sea, Ravenna drew a great deal of, it, of its uh, importance and status. But it had also been recognized as a great city with strong walls and the Emperor Claudius had built a very elegant uh, Porta Aurea in the walls, a sort of major ceremonial entrance. And it had uh, access to the river, uh, through the River Po to the Po Valley and therefore good transport, riverine transport up to Milan and I think the main reason why it became, it flourished so well was that when the emperors decided they couldn't actually defend the city of Milan uh, from barbarian attack and Honorius decided that he would move to Ravenna, it became a center of imperial power surrounded in this very marshy area of the Po estuary, which meant that it was quite difficult to approach by land and sieges were generally unsuccessful and it managed to sustain its imperial ideology within what had been a smaller center, but which grew and expanded, of course, as soon as the imperial court arrived, because all the other uh, followers of the court arrived with it and huge numbers of bureaucrats and military um, contingents and so on. So it expanded very rapidly. And then at the point where it finally gave up this imperial role, we could put it perhaps around the time of Charlemagne because the Carolingian conquest established new, a new northern governorship um, in, in Ravenna, which was of course paralleled in many other Italian cities where the Carolingians established uh, garrisons, cultural centers. Pavia was obviously a very important uh, center for um, the Lombards and for Charles. And in a way, uh, it became one of many cities rather than the source of uh, urban uh, renewal and sustained Im Im urban culture. But its, its main role passed to Venice very gradually through the uh, um, uh, development of, of Venice's, uh, the great maritime trading center which gradually replaced Ravenna's harbor as it silted up or was allowed to silt up partly because the Venetians had indeed adopted that role, taken it over and transformed it into a very much larger um, connection through their determination to trade with the Arab states 
and through Alexandria and the East Mediterranean ports with places much further east. So in a way, um, the handover to Venice, which was of course not at all conceived as a handover by Ravenna, um, gave, that, gave Venice the key role which uh, Ravenna had played uh, previously. One of the things you do so elegantly in the book is, is to show that um, how Ravenna is the, the beneficiary of, of Rome and Milan and of, of Western seizures of the cardiac arrest of the invasions and, and equally that baton being passed on uh, to Charlemagne, the Carolingians and also to Venice. The, sort of the, the, the golden period for Ravenna is in response to specific circumstance and this long continuity I think is why uh, the, the case you make of, of how this is the, the crucible of, of Europe. I know that Conrad is going to talk about uh, the Carolingians and Charlemagne. Um, Professor Canberra and Averill, would you like to come in and um, join us to, to come with a, a response to uh, what Judith has just spoken about and about the book itself? Yes, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you, Judith, for such a lovely book. It's uh, marvellous to have an opportunity to celebrate it. Um, why is it important? Well, um, it gives us a different picture of Ravenna. I think that's the important thing about it. And Ravenna, as you say, was an imperial city. It was um, the capital in the first, fifth century of the Western Roman Empire. Um, it became the seat of Theodoric the Goth, uh, and then it became an imperial exarchate again. And it was the the sort of the the, um, the center for Byzantium in Italy. Um, I think the uh, first of all, Ravenna is not just about its mosaics. Most of us or many of us will have been to Ravenna and seen them and they are absolutely wonderful and marvelous. But what you've given in this book is a history over several centuries with of change and development. And I think the history of the city is not told in an accessible way. And that's what you've done in the book. The, the, the mosaics are absolutely beautiful and wonderful, of course they are, and the buildings are in marvellous shape now if one visits them, um, but it's this long history as um, an administrative centre, an imperial centre, a royal capital, um, and a very, um, with a very mixed population which I think is very interesting. And to me, one of the fascinating things about Ravenna is that it has this collection of papyri, of evidence of letters and wills and documents on papyri. And they're preserved uh, from the late sixth century onwards because of, I suppose, of the climate and the wetness and the, the, the marshy character there. Somehow we have these papyri, which we don't have from other Italian cities. And they tell us about the population and the people and their, um, uh, their lives, their property, uh, their legal uh, quarrels with each other. It's about women, slaves, uh, free people, military, because there was a military presence, uh, women, um, men, and and their names are fascinating, as you bring out in the book, that the names, some of the names are still Gothic, some of the names are Latin because they're, they're Roman, some of them are mixed. So we have this vibrant sense of a living community with personal access to some of its citizens, and that's almost unparalleled except in Egypt in the period. So I think that's really exciting. To go back to the mosaics, probably the most iconic picture we have of Justinian and Theodora, uh, the emperor and empress of Byzantium in the sixth century is in the church of San Vitale, but San Vitale was started 
under the Ostrogoths already. It wasn't built by Justinian. Most people think it was built by Justinian. It was started under the Goths. It became Byzantine. It was built and finished rather um, while the war uh, fought by Justinian to reconquer Italy was still going on. And it, I think it's an extraordinary, very, very complex building, and which is also not often brought out, but your sort of sense of organic development gives it that perspective. And I'm very struck also that something you mentioned that these these buildings and these churches were remodeled to suit the different administrations. So the great church, the palace church of Theodoric, the Ostrogoth, uh, was remodeled once the Byzantines had won the war in Italy. Um, and the, the actual depiction of Theodoric's palace was removed, um, but it still remained and became absolutely central uh, for the Byzantine administration. So it, it's, it's a really organic story that you can tell. And you have some interesting perspectives. For instance, you say that um, Ravenna was acted upon. It didn't, it wasn't an agent so much. It was acted upon from outside. It became the seat of the Byzantine administration in Italy, it didn't, which included Rome incidentally, um, from the late sixth century onwards. Um, and then you also say it could after all have been the Venice of its day um, but it didn't manage to achieve that. Um, and you just explained a bit of why that was, that that, that port that had been so important silted up. Um, religion is important. The archbishoprics of, of Ravenna became important in the seventh century. Uh, but that was a time when in Rome, which was in a way much less important than Ravenna at that time, uh, Rome, in Rome, the popes of the seventh century were mainly Greek in origin which is really extraordinary. So there's so many links and so many, so many complications here. Um, and then in your conclusion, which you, um, you, you, you gave us, you link it uh, in a very, a, a very interesting way with your first book, The Formation of Christendom, because in that book, I'm afraid I can't remember the date of publication now, but you can tell us probably. Anyway, anyway, in that first book, you 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 wrote about the this period during if we we would probably now call it the transition from late antiquity to the Middle Ages, or many people would, but you prefer the term Christendom. You you don't use the term late antiquity very much, and I think that's you make explicit that link with your first book and it's it's very engaging to find a scholar doing that it's it so it obviously means that you're coming I won't say full circle that wouldn't be that wouldn't be fair but you are you are coming back and you're making your early work relevant and um, to live again in what you've written about Ravenna um, so and finally then you make this move to the west which is more Conrad's territory than it is mine but I think it's a very important book because it gives us another perspective on uh, developments between Byzantium and the West in that crucial period after the um, Justinian, what, what people call the reconquest, it didn't last for very long in the sixth century into that period when Charlemagne begins to dominate. So I loved it, thank you. Brilliant, fantastic. That's uh, wonderful, Abril, and uh, filled with insights as as usual. Conrad, did you want to take us on later towards the sort of end of Ravenna and into 
the Carolingians, Charlemagne, what, 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 what Ravenna means from a Western perspective? Sure, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously the boorish Westerner at the Byzantine feast, and I'm, I'm happy to play that part. I didn't make it to Ravenna till 2017, didn't know what to expect, don't really like high culture, um, but it, it blew me away. And, I, and, um, and I've just, I mean, you go to these unprepossessing brick buildings, and then you are literally in, a, in, in another world. Um, um, and so, so I'm uh, equally boorish to kind of gawping at, at, at the city still. And I'm aware that, I mean, it's harder to make it to Ravenna right now. And Judith, and you write in the introduction, if you've never visited, you've missed an amazing experience and extraordinary delight, which this book aims to recreate. And you can't have known when you wrote those words, what, what we would be looking at now. And, and you've given us, I think, really a, a pilgrim guide in, in the age of COVID, for which we have so many reasons to be thankful. And I, I'm reaching here to draw ways back into discussion, given his work, um, on pilgrimage, um, and I hope he tells us about Erasmus' character, Mr. Stay Home, <laughs> um, um, Menedemus, you know, who, who is a, a, the figure for our, our age. And I mean, what I learned from Wes's book also is that pilgrim guides necessarily meditate about the powers of representation and their limits. So the, the way that a book can take us to a place, but also how it, it can't and how, and how it, 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 something will always fall short. And so that's how that's how really how I I, I read you that um, in, you you meditate throughout the whole book about the power of images and as as, as Avril says I mean the kind of the central one is the image of Justinian and Theodora at San Vitale and they never visited the city they were never there so it's an astonishing recreation of of imperial presence um, um, a power at a distance I mean the the kind of would contend for the, the greatest achievement of kind of how, how to be a ruler um, over a place when you never go there, which is so difficult in a pre-modern context. And that's the image, which is, and I, I entirely buy this, which Charlemagne, Boorish Westerner visiting, he doesn't know how to be an emperor until he goes in, inside that church and then he says, that's what I'm gonna do. Um, and, and, as, and as you, as your conclusion kind of says that you read, I mean, what you've really done, among many things, is to is to kind of make, and you refer to him, Henri Perenne's great dictum, without Mohammed, Charlemagne would have been impossible. I mean, he argues that in general terms, without the conquest of Islam, there wouldn't have been, Northwestern Europe wouldn't have been thrown back on its own resources, it would have keep looking at the Mediterranean. Um, but you've shown us how, you know, without Ravenna, Charlemagne would have been impossible. It, it, directly and intimately. He had no script about how to be a ruler until he saw those mosaics and then he went off and did that. And I say, I think that's, that's um, very compelling as a story. At the same time, and in some ways, my favorite thing about the book is the sadness, um, the undertow of what we've lost. We don't, you know, despite these mosaics, we know the name of none of the people who made them. You emphasize that at the beginning. We don't have the Ravenna annals, except in kind of two kind of pages from the 10th century Meserberg manuscript. We don't have the Chronicle of Ravenna. Um, the ninth century, your ninth century forebear Agnellus, who kind of writes the history of the, the city, his manuscript, which exists only in a 15th century, kind of horrible 15th century manuscript, it ends, it ends abruptly. Um, we, we don't have the end of his story. Um, and um, I mean, where, where the Chronicle ends, and I, and I um, I want to end with this is that you know he tells us that the um one day 
the bread in the city chars in the oven. The, 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 the judge's bread chars, the archbishop's bread, and he hates the archbishop. I mean, this whole great story about the Mediterranean connectivity kind of dwindles down into this petty quarrel between clerics. Um, and Agnellus ends, you know, so having done this great sweep kind of from, from, from you know, from, from the later Roman Empire onwards, he ends with this image of black bread in the oven by the bishop whom he, you know, with whom he's in conflict. And I, I hope our own hopes for the world don't turn to ash um, today, quite specifically. Um, but I, I think you've, you, what, what you've shown us is, is really the, say, both the littering legacy, but also, also the, you know, the power of forgetting. And, and your, your book kind of holds that balance in, in a, a very poignant way. So thank you. Judith, do you want to come back um, of those lovely comments from, from both our, our commentators, expert commentators? Thank you so much. These are very, very encouraging and, and supportive and helpful uh, comments. And I'm very grateful to you for uh, looking at the book and seeing it in these new ways. It was surprising to me that I, I never expected to write a, a history um, based on a city, nor did I think, nor did I really think I would find such curious things. But I was really amazed by the Goths who sign in Gothic on their, on their papyri. I mean, they're still using the scripts that have been devised for them in the mid fourth century. And they are obviously venerating their, their own Christian faith in, in Gothic, using Gothic hymns and the translations of the liturgy um, that were made by Ulfila for them. So there's a very, a very live sense of the Aryan Christian definition. Uh, uh, and it's, 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 it's a living thing. And these people are dis greatly discomforted by the demand that all Aryan churches shall be handed over to the Catholic authorities, which is what happens uh, in the 560s and why we have a remodeled um, mosaic in Santa Polinari Nuovo that Avril um, um, referred to with the hands that are left um, on the columns of the, of the uh, palace uh, when the, the individuals were taken away and replaced by beautiful curtains and the image of Theodoric, as I believe, was replaced by gold mosaic. So these, it is very curious that as there's so much going on in the city and I do think that Charlemagne learned to be an emperor by going there and he would not have got that by going to Rome, although there were very, very fine mosaics uh, in Rome in the late eighth and ninth centuries. And there were indeed statues of old Roman emperors. But I think the notion that Justinian provided him was how to be a, an early medieval emperor um, with the, the um, liturgical function of an emperor in leading a procession towards the altar with a, a big offering of gold. And of course, the most extraordinary thing is that Theodora is opposite in the space, which is the Vima, the, the apse, where women are not allowed. So it's a, it's a really astonishing thing that her portrait is there and has survived. But again, it's because they, have, uh, they were the inspirers of that particular church. And I, I imagine it was um, quite a common thing for people to say we should display our emperor and empress. Uh, it just has not survived in any other place. Um, Constantinople must have been full of images of Theodora. We know of statues, but 
none have survived. So we're left with this um, very striking picture, which I think greatly influenced Charlemagne. Why is it, Judith, if Ravenna is so central and so well known artistically, why, why, has it, why is it so poorly exploited by, why has it been so poorly exploited by historians? Why, why does it get glossed over? Why, why, why have you spent um, nine years on this wonderful monograph um, and no one else has thought to do so? Lots of people have written about Ravenna, but primarily because it has the beautiful mosaics and many of them are art historians and I'm not. So I can see that it's, it's such a stunning uh, city to visit, partly because it's small and you can walk from one church to another and in every area and in the remains of the palaces, you see these spectacular mosaics. So it, it, it is a very, it's accessible um, to the art historian and it demands an explanation of how and why these mosaics were put up and the buildings themselves. After all, the octagon of San Vitale is a very unusual building. Churches were not normally built um, with eight sides and raising domes was still quite problematic in the West or other, it wasn't done. And therefore these initiatives, which we suppose to have come from the East, not necessarily uh, from Constantinople, but possibly via Constantinople. Um, these were new ways of building, new ways of decorating um, that set a standard, which was not very common. So uh, art historians are necessarily um, uh, required to visit Ravenna and discuss it, but they may not be so interested in the bishops and although I think Deborah Delianis did a wonderful job with translating and the account of Agnellus, um, there, is, there is a lot more to discover about the history uh, of the city and its inhabitants, mainly from the papyri, but also from chance references, visits by, for example, Bishop Germanos from Auxerre, who went all the way to Ravenna to appeal to the emperor for tax relief and um, the Empress Gala. Placidia received him and pinched his relics and, and when he died sent him home in a, in a sealed coffin so that he could be buried back in Oxair. So there were visitors to the city, there were constant, there were constant embassies coming and going and that's the sort of aspect that you don't get if you're just looking at the churches and the beautiful art. Does this, I mean, is Ravenna truly exceptional from a Byzantine perspective? I mean, does periodization mean that we should look at Venice in similar kinds of ways to, to Ravenna as a sort of an outpost that is arrived? I mean, is Ravenna seen as a rival at any point in Constantinople? Uh, do we see cities this size and shape in the Eastern Mediterranean and elsewhere that, that play similar functions and roles? And, and, and if not, if not, why not? Oh, I think um, as soon as you look at great cities like Alexandria, Antioch, um, the major cities of, a of Asia Minor, you immediately see um, flourishing centers of, of merchants and, and Christian beliefs and arguments and teaching and scholarship and all the things that we associate with um, great urban centers. The striking thing, of course, is that in the West, there was a, a, a very marked city decline and these elements of urban life dwindled or until they were taken over by bishops and restored in a way that meant that the baths could still continue to function and certain charitable institutions were constructed. But the notion of schools, 
and the teaching of law and the idea that there, there should be an urban uh, culture which was which drew on its its Roman Roman roots um, that dwindled or was actively destroyed. After all, there were many, many, uh, many, many cities were sacked, burned to the ground, and there was terrible destruction in the course of the so-called barbarian invasions of the fifth and sixth centuries, so fourth century. So you get a, a Ravenna was spared um, those very violent attacks, and it had this self-conscious role that it took on as, as an imperial capital when Honorius moved there. So it became, it adopted a new status and became exceptional in the medieval West, the early medieval West. You're on mute, Avril. Can you remind us, Judith, of the size of the population? Do we? Know? I, I, I'm sorry. It's a. It wasn't a very large city, was it? No, it wasn't a very large city. And the city walls today, which survive in large part, indicate that it was quite a compact, small Roman oppidum, and it was based on a very clear, um, traditional Roman city plan. But it had large suburbs, and we and villas have been excavated in the suburbs, and very large cemeteries outside the city walls. And this area beyond the city walls was eventually linked to the harbour at Classis by another centre called Caesarea. And therefore, there was a there was a, a concentration of population in the in that area around Ravenna between Ravenna and Classis. Which meant that there was a there was a there was a lot of space for new inhabitants uh, and new population to grow, and they did, so that it became. It, although the city itself is small, I guess the surrounding population that drew on Ravenna as its centre was mm. quite significantly larger um, than other cities in Italy at the time. And here, of course, we get into terrible problem of dem demographics because. What were the populations? What was the population of Rome in the mid fifth century after the Vandal attack of 455? It must have been very, very much reduced from its uh, third century um, heyday. But by how much? Um, certainly, the reuse of a building material from some of the insulae and the repairs to theatres because they were falling down and the repairs to the Palatine uh, palaces. Uh, all that carried on as Rome restored itself. But in Ravenna, there was new building, a de novo, and it was very, um, and it was very striking that it was so ambitious and it obviously catered to a larger population uh, and a mixed population because there had to be churches for the Aryan and churches for the Catholics until the, 560s. Mm, but, but, but it's the very, I think, thinking of the Charlemagne visit, it, it's the compactness of the centre, the buildings in the centre that must have made a colossal impression and he wouldn't have got that going to Rome. Rome mm. is very dispersed and yes. as you, I'm sure, as you say, there would have been much more to see than we can see now, but even so, not so easily, not so easy to take in. 
no. and it's that sort of compactness of those buildings and the the pictures the pictorial decoration and the liturgical function must have made a colossal impression and you wrote in your book about how you saw it in 1959 <laughs> i think and i saw it in 1963 on a on a car drive down to all the way to Rome and um, and it made a great impression but it wasn't in great shape in those no. days no no and I didn't go back until much much later until the 1990s and by which time wonderful restoration had been done yeah. yes and I was really astonished and it, it made more impression on me then I think and a different kind of impression and that's presumably the impression that Charlemagne would have got well, I think the city had been um, uh, restored and and it had remained a very important city centre and the Exarchs had built and repaired mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, it, it was still very much, it wasn't expanding perhaps, but it was not shrinking into a tiny settlement. Uh, and certainly the bishops had acquired vast holdings of land and were drawing on taxation and contributions in kind from many, many estates, which meant that the Church of Ravenna was extraordinarily rich, not as rich as the, as the Church of Rome, but it drew on similar resources and it had the capacity to build and to maintain uh, the, the, the ecclesiastical buildings. And of course, the walls still remained a very important uh, defense. Um, Ravenna was was not um, becoming a, a a backwater, so the bishops continued to think of it as a very important centre, and indeed they had the wealth to um, keep it uh, in as a as important and uh, influential in northern Italy. Great. Well, we've got uh, just about a quarter of an hour left, so I'm going to hand back to Wes. Uh, I know there have been some questions uh, from the. Uh, audience or those viewing, if you've got questions, please type them in the Q&A box and we'll try to get around to asking them. Uh, but Wes, welcome back. Thank you. And uh, your name has been already mentioned by Conrad and to give us uh, your your ideas, I think, about, about pilgrimage, about movements of people. Um, but why don't you, I think, uh, lead us through some of the questions. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, w I have thought about Ravenna mainly in relation to 16th century pilgrims. Um, for whom it was a fortress city uh, um, for the most part. Um, but also, um, of course, as well as the mosaics of Ravenna, there's the monster of Ravenna, which is one of the most sort of uh, celebrated uh, monstrous births of the 16th century. And it's a complicated allegorical story, but we can save that for another time. Um, <laughs> movement of peoples, I think, is one of the questions. Uh, I'll take the two questions that people may be able to see in the Q&A in reverse order. Movement of peoples is one of the questions that's come up. So Marcus Lux. Um, uh, says, um, can you tell us a bit more about the heterogeneous society um, that you're that you sort of write about in Ravenna? Which ethnic groups can we find in the city, and also which sources, material and/or written, um, do they appear? Uh, how do we know about them? Effectively, we know about the Goths because they um, preserved writings in Gothic. The Gothic Bibles, which have, um, must have been some of them very, very spectacular, like the one preserved at Uppsala, gold and silver lettering on purple dyed parchment, really spectacular. But of course, there were other smaller, less, less important liturgical books. And recently, a very fine new edition has been made of one of the translations of the Vetus Patrum. 
these are the lives of the desert fathers, which were very, very popular throughout the Mediterranean world. They were translated from Greek and Syriac into Latin, and the copy was made in around 700, and it has been preserved in Ravenna. It's, it's a, a fine new edition, showing that there were uh, copyists, there, were, there was a demand for, for books, and that stories of the desert fathers were, were popular. The, the, uh, the, the uh, number of people and the different sorts of people, uh, numbers are very difficult, mm -hmm. but we know that there were synagogues and there, were, there was a Jewish community. There's been a, an archeological find, which is a, the neck of an amphorae, which has shalom written on it in Hebrew. And it's in the archeological museum uh, as an indication that there were communities using their, uh, their Hebrew. And indeed one synagogue was converted into a church and synagogues in the fourth and fifth centuries were attacked by the Christians. Um, but in the case of uh, one attack, uh, the bishop was ordered to finance the repayment, the re repair to the synagogue. Um, a very interesting notion of the need to allow the Jews to celebrate their own faith. Mm -hmm. Apart from the Goths and the Jews, what we find are references to many, many merchants of different origins, Syrian merchants, silk merchants from the East, uh, people who sign their names on the papyrus in Greek. Now, is this an affectation that they simply wanted to present themselves as uh, very uh, Eastern people or educated Greek people, or were they actually Greek uh, merchant merchants from 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 Aleppo? Uh, Antioch is mentioned as a place, um, and of course connections with Alexandria were very pronounced. They, the papyrus may have been imported from Alexandria, um, so there's a there's a, a great range of different pop of peoples in the city, and the interesting thing is that they appear to have cohabited mm -hmm. without the terrible conflicts that we hear documented in places like Milan under, under St. Ambrose, where when the Aryan Christians met the Catholic Christians in procession, they just, they fought. Mm -hmm. And there was terrible violence over the control of churches. Mm -hmm. Ravenna appears to have had a very clear policy. These are the churches which the Catholic bishops are, are building. These are the churches which the Aryan Christians are using. They have their own baths for the, for the, for the presbyters, for their clergy. Uh, we have our baths for the Catholics. It's all, um, well, of course there must have been rows because the synagogues were attacked, but nonetheless there appears to have been built in a certain degree of toleration and of uh, admitting that people had different faiths and had to be allowed to celebrate them. Before we move to the other question, which which does uh, address that question of doctrinal difference as well, I wonder if I could repeat Peter's question from early, which is uh, how exceptional then? I mean, you, you seem to be arguing then that Ravenna is actually fairly exceptional in that regard, including in relation to the sort of multi, I'm not going to say multicultural, but nonetheless multi-faith, um, uh, uh, um, the mixedness, the métissage, if you like, which is going on within the city. Um, is it properly exceptional for the Mediterranean at the time? Uh, this might be a question to our other speakers as well, but initially it's a question uh, to you. Yes, I think possibly it's, it's, a, it's paralleled in Constantinople very prominently, where Theodoric, of course, had spent a decade as a hostage 
in his youth. And in that critical period of adolescence, he'd been living in Constantinople as a hostage for his father's good behavior. So he was he was not badly treated. It appears that the hostages lived in, in the palace or in palaces. Um, they were always paraded at uh, festive events, at ceremonial events, so that they could be shown off as the emperor's hostages. There was one from uh, Georgia, another from Armenia. And so there was a notion that these were the youth, uh, the younger representatives of potential enemies. Mm -hmm. And they were kept in Constantinople. And there Theodoric learned about the cohabitation of Arian and Catholic because he as an Arian had to celebrate in the churches outside the walls. And that was of course a very, very critical part of his belief that uh, for cooperation and cohabitation to work, there had to be an acceptance of difference. And the notion that Justin I, the emperor of the early sixth century was going to close the churches which had been used by the Aryan Christians and prevent them from celebrating their faith was a, of course a spark that made uh, Theodoric very, very angry. But I think in Ravenna, he found it quite natural to recreate uh, this mixture because the Goths, although they may have been quite numerous and they were very militarily sufficient, um, uh, uh, expert and they were allowed to carry weapons and and do the hard fighting they were a minority and their Aryan faith was always considered a minority so the catholic um the local catholic the italian the local inhabitants the christians who lived in ravenna before the goths arrived knew very well that they were in the majority mm -hmm. and they had to bear with the fact that these people they've been conquered by king theodoric uh, and previously by um, the leader Odoasa. So they knew about alternative definitions and they accepted that these had to be uh, built into their world. And that I think made it possible for um, all these bishop, uh, all these mission, all these merchants and pilgrims and people wanting to visit Ravenna to come and feel at home, not to be isolated or excluded in the way that perhaps foreigners were often considered dangerous and not not welcome in the city. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I don't know if anybody else wants to come in on this this question. Uh, if Conrad, are you about to? No. Just, just to say briefly, I mean, I think one of the many things that the sort of glittering legacy, hopefully, of the book is that we could ask the Ravenna question of, of other places in, as it were, in the West, so it's somewhere like Marseille, yeah. Um, I mean, Cordoba, Cordoba, kind of obviously so, yes. um, but also, you know, um, you know, Magdeburg or Merseburg, where as well, you know, where the, where the annals end up. I mean, Ravenna, Ravenna is portable, as as you if you've shown, and I think some that that includes its 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 mixedness. Um, and you know, I think it may help us kind of rethink how we think of uh, of the communities else as well in in the kind of. <laughs> In the other, other, in the apparently homogenous Latin West, which is much less so once you poke at it. It's Very slightly good. cheeky of me, but I wonder how important the word port is in your portable. In other words, <laughs> is this a story about ports? Um, uh, your last two examples weren't necessarily ports, but I mean, yeah. uh, but but is it is it? I mean, I asked this partly because we have a torch, a flourishing torch network on colonial ports, um, uh, mainly nineteenth and twentieth century ones, which have shown that there's this extraordinary richness of port culture, um, uh, which again sort of undermines but also complicates uh, uh, an overly straightforward imperial story. 
Um, and I wonder if that's true already in, in your period. Um, it, it seems to be, yes. Uh, uh, yes we'll we'll move so. quickly then to, to uh, the uh, another great question, I think, from Neil Carey, which um, the terms of which are complicated. So would you say something about how far doctrinal and hierarchical disputes between, on the one hand, the Pope in Rome, and on the other, the Patriarch in Constantinople, complicated and frustrated the status of Byzantine Ravenna. So we're back to Byzantium. Um, and it, yeah, are these, there's a lot of terms in there. I wonder if you have anything to say about it. Yes, I think that's a very, very good question. And it's a very difficult one. Um, I think what we find in Ravenna is that the exarch is the governor sent by Constantinople from uh, the late sixth century onwards. And his position is to uphold whatever the patriarch in Constantinople and the emperor have agreed, as long as they have agreed what their, their formal creedal um, belief is. And when that is, is, in, is denounced in Rome, by the Pope who says, we are not going to go along with this definition that's come out of Constantinople. The Bishop of Ravenna is put in a very, very difficult position mm -hmm. because the exarch is his neighbor, is his governor, is his overlord. And yet he is leading the uh, community, the Christian community in Ravenna. And he is also very, very anxious to sustain his distance from Rome because he does not wish to be seen as a subordinate of the Bishop of Rome. He, mm -hmm. wishes, he wishes so much that Theodosius II, way, way back in the fifth century, had established the autonomy of the Church of Ravenna. But that was not done. Ravenna was given very considerable uh, authority. The, the city, the, the bishop was given subordinate bishops, estates, uh, patronage and wealth, but he was still to be, um, uh, he was due to go to Rome to be inaugurated by the Pope. So the Bishop of Rome had official control over the uh, establishment of bishops in Ravenna, and this was deeply resented in Ravenna. And of course, it was also much used by popes like Pope Gregory I, who had a, a, a he had his own agent um, in Ravenna, looking after things that were of interest to Rome and trying very hard to keep the bishops of Ravenna in control. Um, but it, there, was, there was obviously a very great difference between uh, uh, religious uh, decrees issued in Constantinople and how they were observed in Rome and Ravenna. And as often as not, there was a contradiction and it was an opposition, which meant that there were quarrels and there were schisms. They excommunicated each other. And in the mid-seventh century, Archbishop Mauros was indeed excommunicated and was not given, uh, uh, was written out of the diptychs. Uh, and the churchmen in Ravenna secretly used to hold uh, funereal feasts on the day of his death so that they could remember their bishop, although he had been officially um, excommunicated and cut out of the history of the city. Gosh, thank you. Um, when I can hear some of the, the bells ringing two o'clock already, but we might have time for one last quick question, if, if there is a quick answer to this. And that's because you mentioned art historians um, as people who've thought about uh, Ravenna and written about Ravenna a good deal. And of course, there are the famous mosaics. Um, so, but Andrea Matiello asks, um, what, if any, are the significant archaeological uh, evidences there um, that art historians should reassess for a better understanding of Ravenna 
in the context of early medieval Italy? Um, does that make sense as a question? Is there a, a quick answer or? Yes, I think it's very, very difficult. The archeologists are, are constantly discovering new things. And indeed, most of the new information about Ravenna uh, of recent years has come from the ground. And it's the archeologists who've been excavating who've discovered, for example, that there were workshops at the port of Classis where um, ironwork and glass work and possibly ivory work was done. And there are new developments in the excavations of the monastic settlement against the, the Basilica of St. Severus, which show that there was a very, very substantial monastic community in the ninth century and on. So there's quite a lot of, of new material and I think that the interesting evidence that we will get is more evidence, although the palaces are very sadly overbuilt, there is more to be discovered about the palaces, the secular buildings of the rulers of Ravenna. And we may yet discover more about the schools because there must have been schools, philosophical schools, law schools, places where bureaucrats were trained, not just in, in bureaucratic, in secretarial skills, but in actual copying uh, and producing manuscripts and then commentaries on ecclesiastical texts. Mm -hmm. But that's yet to be, that's yet. I think the other, very quickly, the other very interesting thing is that quite a lot of the Gothic manuscripts which were produced in Ravenna are turning up as palimpsests. Mm. They were scrubbed and they are reused and for example, in the writings of Isidore of Seville, a great number of palimpsests uh, of reused parchments have Gothic under writing or Greek. Mm -hmm. And it is supposed that they came from Ravenna or places near Ravenna where Gothic culture was uh, um, cultivated, was uh, uh, used and employed regularly. Mm -hmm. And that when people in the seventh and eighth centuries found they could no longer read these Gothic manuscripts or they had no use for them, they put them into the pile, which was to go to uh, the scribes who would um, scrub them all and then copy more interesting texts like St. Augustine or St. Isidore of Seville. So mm -hmm. gradually we are building up more of a resource through the study of palimpsests, mm -hmm. which is an absolutely fascinating discovery. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yes, and, and palimpsests is a kind of another portable um, a degree in which port Ravenna becomes portable uh, both both metaphorically and materially um, strikes me as, as a very interesting. Uh, maybe it's a good place to end. Um, I don't know if anybody else wants to come in, Peter, Avril or, or Conrad, Avril, if you want to say anything else at, uh, by way of conclusion. Um, if not, I'll um, just echo what one of uh, the uh, questions in the chat this time says. Um, this is an extraordinary book, dearly awaited. Um, we now uh, understand a bit more about it. Thanks. Um, both to you yourself um, uh, and also to our speakers, our interlocutors in this conversation. Um, so thank you once again to all our speakers, Conrad Leiser, Avril Cameron, Peter Frankopan and Judith Heron herself for a brilliant discussion. Thank you to those who were watching and listening. Um, uh, and um, uh, please join us at the same time next week for our next book at lunchtime, where the question of Europe uh, is further addressed, this time Western Europe's Democratic Age, written by Professor Martin Conway. Uh, at, do check the Torch website uh, to register for next week's event. Um, and thank you once again, all of you, and uh, stay safe, stay well. Goodbye. <laughs>